Well, I don't know if you recognize the song that Meredith was playing. It was, in my life, Lord, be glorified. Indeed, that's what we would like to see. There's a saying out there that I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. See, we, we all know the right words to say, but it's sometimes more difficult to live it out, to, to actually do it. And we can talk more about what is right than we actually do. But there's one whose words and actions are never at odds. He always did what was right. In fact, if you listened and watched very carefully, you would see that his actions actually illustrated his words and his teaching. It demonstrated his mission, his purpose. Also showed his heart as well as his character. And of course, I'm speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God who came and put on flesh and dwelt among us. As we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, we've seen him start his, his public ministry. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, we saw him read this passage out of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for the sight of the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then as he handed the scroll to the steward of the, of the scripture, he sat down and everyone looked at him and he said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He has started his public ministry in setting people free. And we've seen this. Some under the misery and oppression of the enemy, of Satan, Possessing, controlling people so they can't control their own actions. And he casts that oppression out. And some are under the oppression of physical oppression. Sick with fever and disease. He heals them and sets them free. And we're going to see that again today as we look at Jesus' life. But we're going to see that there's a greater need than just physical healing or the removal of spiritual oppression really a healing and relationship with the Holy God, our Heavenly Father. Today we're going to look at three episodes in Jesus' life, or three pericope, as some theologians would call it. And we're going to see Jesus' actions actually illustrate and validate His words and the reason that He said He has come. And for whom, or whom, He has come for. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. We're going to pick it up at verse 12. Before we get into the scriptures, let me pray for us. And we'll ask the Lord to open our eyes today. So Lord Jesus, this is your word. It's a record of your life. And would you help us today to see who you truly are? Would you open our eyes and show us, show us through your life what you came to do and what you want to continue to do in our lives in the lives and hearts of men and women. So, Lord, I thank you for your word, and now use it in our lives to shape us into men and women who are more like you, who are letting the living Christ live within him, them. And Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray these things. Amen. So here we are in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up at verse 12. It says, While Jesus 
was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. This is a compassionate cleansing. And I want to tell you, this is one of my favorite episodes of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's just, it, it astounds me. Because here is a man who lives in a society that is run by the Old Testament law. And particularly in relation to skin disease or leprosy, there were special regulations. If you want to read about it, you can open your Bibles a little bit later to Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. It reads like an ancient dermatology you know, document. But there were regulations for everything. But to have leprosy in the first century, especially in Judea, was a death sentence. You see, once it was determined that you had leprosy, here are the things that you had to do. You had to tear your clothes. You had to have your disheveled hair. You had to go around everywhere you went shouting, unclean, unclean. And you had to cover the lower part of your face. See, there are no HIPAA laws in those days. Everybody knew that you had leprosy. In fact, that you were one to be avoided. Now, there were some, there were some health reasons for this. They didn't want this disease to spread. But you were unclean in the sight of God and of others. And to touch a leper... Well, that would make you at least ceremonially unclean, if not expose you to the disease. It was a living death sentence. The social ramifications were worse than the disease itself. You had to live outside of the, t the camp, outside of the town. You were ostracized from your friends, from your family, from your job, from worship. In fact, you had to stay 50 paces away from everybody else. And there was no cure. The thought was only God can cure leprosy. And so here we have this situation. This man who is covered in leprosy from head to toe. It's not just a little spot. It's all over his body. Racked with it. And I think he breaks the 50 pace rule. And he comes before Jesus and says, Lord, if you are willing you can make me clean. You know why this is one of my favorite stories? It's because of how Jesus reacts. He doesn't request, like, get away from me. No. In fact, he does the unthinkable. He reaches out to the man and touches him. In danger of becoming unclean himself, if you will. And he says, I am willing. 
What a beautiful expression of the compassion that Christ had for this man who was ostracized from everyone and everything. He says, be clean. The amazing thing is not only that he is healed. I mean, Jesus, Jesus could have just said, be clean, right? But no, he reaches out and he touches him to somehow express, I'm not only restoring you, but I accept you. And I'm drawing you to myself. And think, think of what it would be like to go years without human touch. What an amazing and beautiful thing. In doing this, he demonstrates compassion and tenderness, restoring this outcast man both to God and to those around him. I don't know about you, but I go, this is the Savior I want to follow. But then Jesus, he has this cleansed leper. I mean, he's already cleansed. He's, he's healed. But he has him go and keep the law. Verse 14, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. You see, in that society, only the priest could legally declare that you were clean. So he would go and offer up a sacrifice of a, of a lamb or a, or a, a couple pigeons or, or doves. But the priest, the priest was probably more surprised or as, as surprised as anyone else. Because this didn't happen. People didn't get over leprosy most of the time. Most of them they lived with it and died with it. And it was a testimony given about what God had done. He had intervened and taken this man who was ostracized from both God and society and restored him. Two things I want to point out to you that this whole story illustrates. Number one, remember, this is a society that is ruled by the Old Testament law. And it was God's word. But you know what? The law couldn't do anything for this leper. Couldn't do anything for him. It took Jesus, God in the flesh, to come and touch him in order for him to be cleansed, in order for him to be healed. This is commentary by an old theologian named Matthew Henry. I thought this was very poignant. This was all that the law could do, in that it was weak through the flesh. It taught the leper to cry, unclean, unclean. But the gospel has put another cry in the leper's mouths. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The law only shows us our disease. The gospel shows us our help is in Christ. What a beautiful statement. You see, the physical reality of this man's leprosy really illustrates our spiritual need. Like the leper, the disease of our sin has separated us from God and from each other in some ways. We are gnarled and contorted in our souls from it. And the law, 
unfortunately, it's unable to help us. It just tells us that we're sinful, that we've missed God's standard. But Jesus reached out in a very tender way by putting on flesh, by dwelling among us. And he came to heal us from our separation from God, from one another. And he takes upon himself our spiritual wretchedness, our spiritual leprosy on the cross, that we might be cleansed and that we might be restored to God and to one another. I want to ask the question, have you cried out to the one, the only one who can deal with your spiritual leprosy? Now Jesus tried to keep things you know, low-key on the down-low. He said, don't tell anyone. But in verse 15 says, yet the news about him spread all the more. So that the crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You know, popularity can be a pretty heavy thing. When the crowd is around you telling you how great you are, there can be a pressure there. There's a temptation to, to feed that momentum. You gotta keep this happening. You gotta keep doing this. And there's a, a temptation to wanna Please the crowd, right? I've got to keep feeding this, and this is a good thing. But while Jesus came to serve, he would not allow them to dictate his priorities or his mission. And he had to get alone with his heavenly Father, get away from that crowd, to hear from him, to have his heart and his priorities, and bring more than just physical healing. We're going to see that again here. And what we see next lived out is what I call a surprise forgiveness of sin. Pick it up at verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, and they had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house and lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now let me tell you, this whole episode is full of surprises. Just full of surprises. First of all, surprise number one, Jesus has hit the radar of the religious experts. There are Pharisees and teachers of the law who have come not from just Galilee, where he's doing the ministry, but from Judea. And all the way to Jerusalem. I mean, he, he's registering on their radar. Like, whoa, whoa. Have you heard about this rabbi up in Galilee? We need to go check him out. We need to make sure he's preaching the truth. We need to you know, make sure he's kosher, if you will. So that's, that's the audience who's watching him. Okay? But of course, there's just the surprise of the great measures that this paralytic man's friends would go to to get Jesus uh, get to Jesus, right? I mean, 
Standing room only. Can't get in there. What are we going to do? Can you imagine all of a sudden, wah, 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 wah. a chainsaw just cuts through the ceiling. All of a sudden this guy comes, you know, coming, coming down. I mean, it's like, whoa, this is unusual. Now, you know, in truth, it probably wasn't as technologically advanced as that. Uh, you know, uh, houses in those days, it was a place, they usually had a ladder or a, a staircase going up to that place because that's where people would dry their laundry or go to pray even. And thatched roofs, you know, and probably some slats over it. So it wasn't, you know, a huge accomplishment to to do that. But I mean, I'm sure the homeowners went, "What are you doing to my roof?" You know, and it's it's everyone sees it. This man's being lowered down. It is a spectacle. All eyes are on this man. And you know, there were laws that in the law of restoration, basically, these men were going to have to repair this. Um, but they would do anything. They were desperate, and they were determined to get their friend to Jesus. I think it's a, I think it's a metaphor for what are the desperation and determination we have to get our friends to Jesus. But you know what's surprising is also Jesus' reaction. He doesn't say, what are you doing? He's actually quite pleased with the faith he sees in his friends. And, you know, we could ask the question, well, was it the man's faith or was it the faith of his friends? I don't think it matters. I think Jesus is just pleased when we have faith in him and he is willing and ready to act. But here's the most surprising thing I think of this story is there's an obvious need. This man is in a mat. This man is being lowered down. Jesus has a reputation as a healer. And he doesn't deal with his paralysis right away, does he? The thing that Jesus deals with is the paralysis and the infection in his soul. As he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. That's the deeper need that this man has. This stirs up controversy, though. Remember, Jesus is under a microscope now. He's got all the religious experts there watching him. And the Pharisees, verse 21, and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Whoa. This Jesus guy has crossed the line. (laughs) Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? These experts were right. Only God can forgive sin. In fact, even when we sin against somebody else, ultimately we sin against God. David, in his confession in Psalm 51 about his taking Bathsheba uh, as in an adulterous relationship and having her husband, Uriah, killed. He says this in 51.4, Against you and against you only have I sinned because God is the ultimate source of justice and righteousness. So it is right that only God can forgive sin. But they are wrong in this sense. They didn't understand who they were standing before. They didn't understand who Jesus was. And Jesus takes this as an opportunity to reveal a little bit more about who he is. 
See, he knows their very thoughts even. It says in verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, theologically, theoretically, it's harder to say, your sins are forgiven, because only God can forgive sin, right? But here's the problem. You can say it, and it's unverifiable. How do I know whether your sins are forgiven or not? It's kind of loosey-goosey, right? But if you say, take up your mat and walk, well, either you have the authority and the power to do it, or you don't. And the truth of the matter is, most people don't have that authority. In fact, no people have that authority. Unless you're the Son of God. And that's what Jesus is doing. He takes this as an opportunity to verify who he is and the authority he has. He says in verse 24, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Now Jesus kind of cloaks himself in taking the title Son of Man. It's not as inflammatory as Messiah or King. The Son of Man was used of the prophet Ezekiel. But Jesus is assuming some authority. And his actions are claiming an authority. And if you look at who the Son of Man is in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, well, he's one that's endowed with divine authority. Jesus is the Son of Man, and that he is God who put on flesh. He is a man, and yet he is God able to forgive, and showing his power to verify it. When he said, get up and walk, the man did. He did with great joy. In verse 26 it says, everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Everybody was there. Even the religious experts the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, they knew that they had seen God at work today. But God is blowing the categories of how God operates. And that statement, we have seen remarkable things, in the Greek, the Greek word is, we have seen a paradox. That's where we get the word paradox. We have seen something we don't get. We don't fully understand. But Jesus is slowly revealing himself that he is the God-man, the one who has the ability to forgive sins. I want to say a couple things before we move on. I want to say that God still heals today. He really does. It's not a fruitless exercise for us to pray for somebody who's sick. Because God does answer our prayers. Maybe not as often as we'd like it to see it happen. But that's, you know, we have the privilege to come in Jesus' name. Many of you have experienced the blessing of being prayed for. 
So God still heals. But the bigger point is this. The greater need is forgiveness. Right relationship with God. Atonement and reconciliation to a holy God. Here's something I want you to remember. Every person that Jesus healed died. Every person that Jesus healed died. But every person who puts their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins is reconciled to God and has eternal life. Stealing from the Gospel of John. John 3.16-18 through 18, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's why Jesus came, to bring reconciliation. It doesn't say God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that everyone who calls on his name will be healed physically. No, he came in order that we might have eternal life and not be condemned. Jesus' actions, again, are illustrating why he has come. And have you called on the one who has come to restore you, who can heal not only your body, but your soul. Jesus continues. And this is what I've called a counterintuitive call. Look at verse 27. And after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him <laughs> two things that surprised me or, or counterintuitive about this first of all that jesus calls a tax collector to be his disciple i can understand fishermen like peter james and john they're kind of good salty earth kind of guys but a tax collector i mean basically he's a traitor he has sold out, he has sold his soul to Rome to get rich off the people. He's a moral reprobate. He has turned his back on God. And there was no redeeming this job. You know, Jesus doesn't turn around and say, hey, from now on I'll make you taxers of men. No. No. Yet Jesus, it says, he went out and he saw Levi. And the word that saw there means to look on with purpose and intent. He fixed his gaze on Levi. And then he said to him, follow me. You, Levi, I see you. In your, and he sees him. He calls him in his tax booth. Not on the street while he's doing his deplorable job. But more surprising to me is that Levi, he leaves it all to follow Jesus. Now Luke doesn't give us the details of whether they had a previous relationship or not. But to follow Jesus was a 180 degree turn from what he was doing. Okay? 
It was going to change his life dramatically. And it says, Levi left it all. He didn't kind of slowly wade into the pool and say, well, Jesus, I'll follow you on the weekends. No. He leaves it all. He says, I'm done being a tax collector. My old life is over. And now I'm following Jesus. I suspect that he determined that Jesus had more to offer than the mercenary riches that he was experiencing. Somehow Jesus had something to offer. Life. And now in this new life, this new relationship, this new call, he didn't know what it was going to entail, but he had to share it. He had to share it with his friends. Verse 29. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Who does a former tax collector know? It's other tax collectors. And other people who are living the lifestyle that he did. But he had to share what he has found in Jesus with them. But there are other people who are not so happy. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This is quite upsetting to them. Like, Jesus, if you were a righteous man, you, you'd know who to hang out with. You should be hanging out with us. Because we got it right. We're right before God, and you're hanging out with sinners. And, and you know, culturally, it wasn't just sharing a meal. It was to, eat, to share a meal with somebody was to extend fellowship, to extend acceptance. This was quite controversial. And when it says that they complained, it's the same word that the Greek... Old Testament, or the Septuagint use, when it, it recalls Exodus 15 and 17 and Numbers 14 through 17, where the children of Israel grumbled against Moses and against God. They are grumbling against Jesus. Why is he doing this? This is wrong. This is immoral. Why wasn't Jesus seeking them out? But Jesus has to clarify why he's come. Verse 31. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now some commentators have titled this this section, Jesus is going to those who need him most. I think better it's titled, Jesus goes to those who knew they needed him. Jesus goes to those who knew they needed him. There's no pretense of righteousness or goodness with these tax collectors and, quote, sinners. They knew that they had spiritual leprosy, paralysis. They knew that they had turned their back on God. They knew that they were sinners. But they were delighted to hear the good news that Maybe God was actually reaching out to them that they might be restored to right relationship with him. They knew they were in a, a condemned state. But what good news to hear that God is actually reaching out to you 
who was stuck spiritually. The danger of the Pharisees was their study of the law. They knew it well. They knew how to act, where to you know, give whatever sacrifice, what have you. And they thought that the law was their savior. They got good at being good. They were really good at being good. But they were comparing themselves to others instead of understanding the holy standard that God has, which is his, his own holiness. And they believed in their own goodness and they were in danger of missing the cure that was right before them. The Apostle Paul would probably give a, a better theological framework for this in Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, talking about the real purpose of the law. The law was brought in so that the trespasses might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why the Lord Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount would start out by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they're spiritually bankrupt before God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have to know your spiritual poverty in order that you might receive the riches of God's grace. And that was the danger of where the, the Pharisees were at. They did not know their need. A similar thing is going to happen in this same gospel. In chapter 19, verse 10. And Jesus says, look, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Don't you understand? And you can't, I'm not going to do you any good unless you understand that you are lost as well. If you were here last week for Minnesota Teen Challenge coming and sharing their ministry and what God is doing in their lives, I love being with those folks. You know why? Because there's no pretense that they have their act together. There's no pretense that I can do it on my own. Many of them realize that they have shipwrecked their own lives and they are desperate and they need Jesus. They need Jesus to come in and change them, set them free and transform them. And it's beautiful. And I think some of us who maybe have had more functional lives per se sometimes forget that we need Jesus just as much. We forget it. We forget it. And those of us who've been in church for a long time, we do sometimes get good at being good, don't we? And we make it about being good rather than letting Jesus live his life. And we get trapped in a comparison game of how am I doing compared to somebody else? And we forget that we are too Sinners saved by grace and God's mercy. And we even get to the point where we, we don't want to associate with people who are, quote, sinners because we don't want to get our hands dirty. And, and, and I realize there's sometimes there are 
situations we can't put ourselves in because it, it's a trap for us as well. But we forget that Jesus died for these folks. He came for them. And we forget that we too start out as spiritual lepers, spiritual paralytics, cripples before him. We forget that this is why Jesus has come. And Jesus doesn't do anyone any good unless you know that you need him. And folks, I don't know where everyone is at. Maybe somebody is just figuring out right now for the first time. It's not about me being good. It's not about me being better. It's about me understanding my spiritual need before God that I am crippled, that I am a leper, that I am wretched before a holy God. But the Savior has come to reach out His hand and say, Be clean. I am willing. Because He took upon Himself our spiritual infirmity, our spiritual debt and paid it on the cross and conquered sin and death there. So my friend, if if that's you, you're just figuring this out for the first time. I'm not here to condemn you because in my own flesh I stand condemned. But when I put on Jesus, I stand in his righteousness before a holy God. And what you need to know is that you are spiritually crippled. You need a Savior. That you have sinned. You have broken His law. But that Jesus came for you. The first verses I ever memorized is Romans 10, 13. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you confess your sins, say, Jesus, have mercy upon me. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Let me come and follow you. Change my life 180 degrees like Levi and follow you. The scripture says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's like Vianne said. It's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon him keeping his promises and his faithfulness in his word. Jesus came to live out the reason he came. To heal the spiritual leper that we might be reconciled to God and one another. That our sins might be forgiven. And he came to seek the sinner, the unrighteous, which is all of us. We have to know our need for him. Let me pray for us and then we'll have the worship team close us. And if you're someone who wants to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, I, I just want to lead you in prayer. My, my words aren't magic, but I want to give you a chance to respond. So if this is you, just pray these words in your heart after me. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I stand condemned before a holy God. And I thank you that you came to pay my price on the cross, that I might be forgiven, that I might follow you, and that I might have eternal life. So come into my life and change me. 
Make me your servant. Make me your follower. And Lord Jesus, I thank you that you keep your word. I believe in you. Now let me live for you. And Lord, for the rest of us who've been following you for years, remind us, remind us that we are saved by your grace and your grace alone. And it is a beautiful thing. Thank you, Lord, for reaching down into our lives and making us your sons and daughters and saving us from ourselves, Lord. We're so grateful. You are an amazing and awesome Savior. And I thank you for how you demonstrated that and how you lived your life. And I thank you, Lord, that you are coming again and we have life in you. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen.